0: Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about Bo Burnham's special, Inside. So this one, I think is a great foil to the episode I put out last week about Britney Spears, um, where... I talked about the way that mental health can present in women, and I did touch a little bit about how it presents in men, but I think that this topic really gives us a chance to look at how depression can be presented in men and how uh, men Discuss depression as well as how younger people di- discuss depression. Um, so there's there's kind of a couple avenues that I'm gonna go in in this episode. So first of all, we're gonna talk about depression and mental health um, during the pandemic and and for young men like Bo Burnham. I also want to spend a little time talking about um, how we address suicidality in media, as well as gender, how like gender was performed in this special. And then I'm gonna talk about some criticism that I I saw about like white liberals performing <laughs> social justice, and then I'm gonna kind of talk about the themes of some of the songs that Bo includes in the in the special. So basically, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't seen Inside yet, it's been out for a couple of months. It is available on Netflix. Uh, and the songs are available for streaming. So if you haven't seen it, a pause now. <laughs> I recommend you go watch it and then come back and uh, you know engage in in this conversation. And I do want to say, like sh- right away, I absolutely love the special. I was blown away. I laughed my face off, uh, especially at some of the songs about interacting with your parents. <laughs> I I really loved it. I really, really loved it. And I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there. But I also want to talk about it. And I want to talk about some critiques, some aspects of it that could have been done differently. And, And so as I go into that conversation, I think it is important to remember that not every piece of media is made for everybody. Right? There is an audience that Bo Burnham is writing to when he creates his content. And I think that I am part of that audience. Like, I think he's writing to younger white people who identify as more progressive in their politics and so you know that's I kind of fit into that audience Um, so if you fall outside of that audience it may not be as accessible to you and so I think that's important that you know sometimes when we critique media or when we when we critique performances it's because that wasn't for us (laughs) Uh, you know there's some aspects that are missing but it's not possible for every piece of that media to be for every person. So that's just to kind of center the conversation. So If you haven't seen Inside or you're not familiar with Bo Burnham and you don't think you'll be watching it, <laughs> a kind of quick summary of it is, you know, Bo Burnham is a comedian. Um, he typically creates, like, musical, like, comedy songs. And during the pandemic, he filmed, wrote, directed basically d- did m- as much of the work as he could on filming the special by himself in his home um, during the pandemic. And so a lot of the content of the special revolve around the pandemic, the social justice movements happening during that time, um, as well as like autobiographical content about Burnham's own life. So that's kind of what we're working with. So to start off, just kind of talking about mental health and how the- it's represented in this special um You know there is there is a truth to like mental health issues being more prevalent during the pandemic. In a report done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, rates of adults who reported depression uh, increased uh, depression or anxiety increased from about ten percent pre pandemic to about forty percent during the pandemic. Um, Young adults eighteen to twenty four range were more likely to report um, substance use and suicidal thoughts during the pandemic which can be connected with depression, and, and adults who had uh, a loss of a job in a household, so that means whether you lost your job or your partner or you know someone else in the household who was supporting the home lost their job, adults in those households reported higher rates of anxiety and depression uh, in the pandemic than those who did not lose a job in the household. So basically to sum it up, Uh, the pandemic was really bad (laughs) for mental health. And we saw increases in in people reporting depression, anxiety, uh, and that being connected to certain demographic factors like age or or loss of jobs. Um, And in this report from the Kaiser Family Foundation, they also cite previous research um, that was done during the Great Recession, you know, like in the 2008, 2007 era um, that connected uh, or are found correlations between higher rates of unemployment and higher rates of suicide. So, not just in this pandemic, but evidence of in past like economic downturns or you know issues of economic times of economic struggle, there there is a cor- a correlation of higher rates of suicide. So you know all of that to say that when Bo Burnham is creating this special, we are in this time where. Uh, people are experiencing higher rates of mental health issues. Um, and one of the reasons why is because of the isolation. Disaster psychology is a really cool field that focuses on help, like understanding how disasters impact people. And pulling research from the disaster psychology field, um, we see that post disasters, there are higher rates of depression and there are higher rates of serious mental illness or severe mental illnesses um, when people have a lack of social support. So, for example, an incident that was heavily studied in the U.S. was Hurricane Katrina, and people who had gone through or survived Hurricane Katrina... Um, but were socially isolated, so whether they were separated from their families or had lost family members, those people were more likely to have mental health struggles um, than people who had social support of some kind, whether from their family or their community. So inherently, in a pandemic, when you have people who have do not have access to their social support in the same way, um, and especially if they don't have access to like reliable internet or reliable means of communication, there's a big chance that their mental health is going to deteriorate because they have this lack of social support. You know, and think of even if in in the situation where, like, losing your job, that may have been some of your only social contact, is going to your job and and the community of people that you worked with, you not only lost that social support, but you've also lost your means of supporting yourself, which, you know, contributes to experiences of, of mood disorders and anxiety disorders. So, for the time and for the way that Bo Burnham talks about mental health, it, it really lines up with what we've been seeing uh, in the data, right? That we see him as he goes to the special, as, as we, we understand that he's been alone for longer and longer, he's been stuck inside for longer and longer, he's not doing well. And he says that, he says that in the special, like, I'm, my mental health is not doing well. And there are other signs that we see Within the special that kind of point to like a deterioration of mental health. Um, And one of the conceits of the special is that it's completely filmed inside one room, inside, well, what the house that he's living in, which looks like a studio, like a studio apartment kind of. So it's it's like basically one room. Um, And as we, as you watch the special, you'll see points where um, the room is like really messy. Um, sometimes it gets cleaned up but then it's messy again and there's it, it really just looks it kind of looks like a space where it's hard for him to keep it organized and we also see his like personal hygiene like his hair is growing out his beard is growing out but it's not necessarily maintained and he even has a song where he he mentions like I haven't showered in nine days he's wearing mostly like sweatpants and so a lot of these things are kind of what we could say are like outward identifiers of depression and you know from a like clinical perspective you know those are those are important assessment tools right to kind of you know speaking from a clinical perspective myself of like those are things that i might ask people about or i'd ask my clients like you know what's going on with you i'm noticing these things um that people may not connect to their own experience of mental health um, and so I, I wanted to share a little bit of some of this research I found about how mental or what depression specifically can look like in men, um, because as I talked about in the last episode, um, some, some of the uh, hypotheses for why there's data that shows that women are more likely to be depressed with, or diagnosed with depression has to do with like the way that men are able to communicate and or the way that men are able to seek help, and they may not always be able to seek help or communicate depression in a way that would result in them getting a diagnosis of like major depressive disorder so one of the ways in that this, I guess, like a miscommunication of symptoms or a miscommunication um, of what's going on can present um, is the way that men might use the word depression to describe a really wide range of emotions. Um, And so this comes from an article by Brownhill et al. that was done, you know, quite a few years ago, but... I, th- I found was really interesting and it's it is a qualitative study, but they really s- they sat down with a, a sample of men and two, two things kind of stood out. So the first thing was that they noted how men use the word depression to describe basically most negative emotions. so whether it be grief, uh, being annoyed, feeling rejected, feeling alienated, isolated, feeling disappointed, defeated, insecure or desperate like the men in the study would use the word depressed to mean any of those things Um, and it was only from the content context of the sentence that the researchers were able to determine like this might not be depression in the way that you know a mental health professional uses the word depression and I can say in personal experience in the clinical work that I've done I have had clients come in and and male clients specifically come in and say like oh I'm, I'm having a Like, I'm having depression or I am depressed. Um, And then you go through your, like, you know, checklist of symptoms and they don't identify any of the symptoms. And then when you, like, really get down to the um, nitty-gritty, it really turns out they were using that word to sometimes just mean, like, general sadness. um, Or they were using it to mean, you know, a variety of other emotions that they maybe don't have the language for or that don't feel as accessible. And so I I think it is interesting that, that the word depression can kind of encounter like encompass so many feelings for this population. And I I don't know if this is true so much for younger men or younger people who identify as men who, you know, hopefully have grown up in a society that's has a more access to mental health and mental health language and resources, um, but, you know, for this particular sample in particular and, and from some anecdotal evidence I've seen, depression is almost like an, ex- an acceptable way to describe nuanced feelings, so it, it kind of becomes this like blanket term. Um, the second thing that kind of came out of the study was the way that um, Brownhill and their team kind of built this model of like the escalation of experiencing depression um, and I found it I found it really interesting and basically as you move through each tier there's an acknowledgement of like the tier before it didn't work to uh, alleviate the experience of depression so that the male person is like Having to kind of escalate their coping skills, and this is this is in the context of the article, it's like a mal it's maladaptive, like they're not good coping skills or not helpful coping skills, and this is evident in that the final step of the model is suicide. It's like suicide as the ultimate escape. So basically, they they describe the first step as avoidance, so just like avoiding thinking about feelings of depression, avoiding or avoiding thinking about like situations or people who, who may bring up feelings of depression then the next step is using substances to numb this is this would be like lesser substance use so this this might not include like if we're talking about alcohol right it might not include like drinking until you pass out but drinking you know regularly enough to be able to like kind of numb the feelings of depression then the next step up is um, escape which the men in the study identified escape behaviors as either, like, increasing substance use or engaging in things like cheating on their partner or staying late at work. Basically, any type of behavior or substance use that's going to help you to feel like you've escaped from the depression. And this is, like, an escalation from just being numbed to it, right? Because if I'm numb to it, I'm still acknowledging that it's there. But if I'm escaping, I'm, like, trying to even deny that it's there. Um, Then the next step up was acting out, but through either retaliating against the self or others as a release. So men in the study identified like, you know, kind of bottling up their feelings until they blew up at a coworker or blew up at their children, or even in some cases, engaging in self-harm against themselves as like a retaliation to themselves With then again, the final step being suicide, which was described as almost like the ultimate escape. Um, And a lot of the men in the study had had male friends who committed suicide out of the blue. Like, they described it as, like, I didn't know anything was wrong. You know, he just went out to walk the dog, and the next thing I had heard, you know, he, he was dead. He had killed himself. And so it's also this interesting way of, like, that this, like, escalating through these steps of behavior is a way to to push down the feelings so much, or to deny or to hide the feelings so much, that when you reach, if you reach the final step of, attempting to end your life, no one sees it coming, because you've been doing such a good job of escaping or numbing um, your own feelings. So that's kind of, I think, one of the ways that depression in men can look so different, is that there is such an emphasis in repressing or pushing down or, or, like, dealing with it, you know, like, just deal with it. Which I think, and this is just my opinion, but my opinion is that I think that will ch- is changing for younger generations because there has been a shift in the way we talk about mental health, particularly for men, um, and there's more of an acceptance of like understanding and discussing and processing feelings, which I would say is one of the benefits of Bo Burnham's work. Is he's pretty explicit about being depressed or having anxiety, and in fact, during the special, he talks about the reason why he hasn't done live performances in over five years, and it's because he was having panic attacks uh, when he was on stage. So he's he's openly saying, this is the type of mental health struggle I experience, um, this is how I experienced it in the past, and this is how I'm experiencing it now, as well as kind of showing us by letting us look inside, right, of looking into his space and seeing the way that he uses his space, um and maybe at times struggles to maintain himself in his space, he's letting us see, like, it's almost like a nonverbal confirmation of his mental status. It's, it's tough to watch. It can be really hard to watch. And we'll talk about, like, if, it's the, if that's the best way to portray mental health, but um, I think there is an element of it that is beneficial because it is showing an alternative to this the, these steps, right? Of just, like, avoiding, avoiding, numbing, numbing, escaping... So my hope is that as you know, the younger generations continue to grow up and continue to be surrounded by more diverse ways of of um, portraying mental health, particularly in men, that there will be a shift in the need to engage in these types of behaviors. Um, so that's just my, that's my take on that data. But it is a really good study. I, I encourage you to read the article. It'll be linked on my sources as well. Um, another thing that really stood out to me about the, like, the portrayal of mental health is the way that, like, time works in the in the special. Um, so there is this, like, like, rough approximation of a linear timeline. Like, there are, st- like, interstitials between songs where he'll mention, like, it's been six months, it's been a year. Since he's been working on this, um, and we also see, like as his hair grows out, that <laughs> time has passed. Um, but it's not very clear, and also because we are inside, we don't see if it's nighttime, if it's daytime, what season it is. Um, it's really very, like disorienting, time-wise. Um, and there's also a, a, a portion in the middle where we see him turn 30. That the, the clock turns to midnight, and and that's like him turning 30. Uh, and what I, and I really liked the kind of way that he plays with time and and is not very clear about where, where he is in the timeline um, is that I think this really does reflect what it can be like for someone struggling with mental health Um, is that time doesn't necessarily feel like it's moving in a linear fashion. Um, And and I think particularly with people who are experiencing depression, you know, can look like, you know, for one of the symptoms is hypersomnia, right? So like for some people who have depression, they, they, will end up sleeping for like 12, 10 to 12 hours and waking up and still feeling tired, you know, and, and you're missing, and then you're missing these big caps of time, right? That you wouldn't have been missing before um, your, the, the depression worsened, right? So like time is getting taken away from you. Um, and, and another symptom is fatigue, right? Like feeling really, really tired, even if you're getting enough sleep. And that fatigue can make things feel like they take so much more time and effort to do. And so if you've ever experienced this, if you've been depressed or just experienced fatigue in general, you know that it's really hard to keep track of time when you're tired, right? When you're just like really like bone tired, like weary, right? It's hard to keep track of time. What's really reflected in Bo's work is that the sort of like all-encompassing nature of mental illness Makes it difficult to keep track of time or keep track of things in the same way that you might. And so, for those for those of you who like haven't experienced depression in this way, uh, I think this is really helpful to understand like how time can kind of slip away or or, or seem can can feel different for people experiencing like a depressive episode. Is is it's an explanation for why your friends or family members who go through this are not super great with communicating with you during an episode, right? So like, you may think, hey, you haven't texted me back for three days. Like what the heck is going on? <laughs> but the reality is, is for that person, it may not have felt like three days, or the effort required to engage in like a social interaction, like texting you back, um, is too overwhelming. It's too much. Like, and it really is. This isn't, you know, I, I hope this doesn't sound like a joke. Like, oh, you're too tired. You know, like no, this is real. Like, like fatigue is a real symptom of depression. Like, in a way that impacts your life. Like, to be diagnosed with. A depressive disorder we have to show evidence that your symptoms impair your life so your fatigue is impairing your ability to interact with people that you normally would have or or to you know go to work or perform daily activities like this is real and and we also see like fatigue play out in, inside as well like, there's some scenes where he's like laying on the floor you know he's laying down when he's speaking he's having trouble you know it seems like he's he's having trouble like, gathering himself Whereas and then in the next scene, you know, he's, he's built this like elaborate scene and he's performing for us. So I think I just said a lot, right there, but I think what I really want to, the point that I want to make is that, you know, the, as depression ebbs and flows, um, as episodes become worse or start to dissipate, um, you know, time and energy are really susceptible to our mental health, uh, regardless of if you like meet a clinical level of depression or not and and I think this special does a really good job of showing that and one thing that I would hope you would take away from this episode or or from watching his work is is that that is a lived experience of people living with depression Um, and hopefully that gives you a little more understanding of what it's like um, on the other side if you haven't experienced it yourself Um, And I think this is a good kind of transition or segue into the next I guess like the critique that I wanted to put on Um, and basically, I just want to ask the question of, like, is it enough to just put up a suicide hotline um, after something like this? So if you've watched it all the way through, you'll see that Netflix adds, like, this title card at the very, very end. I mean, it is, like, at the very end after all of the credits, all the dedication, and it, it shows their website. Netflix has, like, a... It's like, wantatalkaboutit.com or something like that. I'll link it in the sources as well. But, it you know, you, you go to the website and it has um, resources... Has some videos. It has links to like the Trevor Project and the Crisis Text Line and stuff like that. It was it's not clickable. Like you have to then go type in the website, um, which is like okay Netflix. Like maybe do better um, about that. But you know I think one of the one of the questions that I had when I first watched it was like he is talking about suicide and he's talking about mental health in a way that is very real and very raw. Um, and is it enough to talk about that and then just say, if you're having a problem, call this line? And I realize the hypocrisy of that because I do the same thing, right? Like in each of my show notes, I have a link to the NAMI hotline and the trans Lifeline, line. And I just talked about suicide for like 20 minutes. So, you know, I, I realized the, the hypocrisy of that. But so I wanted to look into like, what are the kind of ways that people approach suicidality from like a public health standpoint. And so I I found this resource from the CDC that talked about kind of like three levels of um, handling suicidality. And so the first level is a population approach, which is how do we make the population in this case, of America, right, equipped to deal with suicide, whether through trainings or raising awareness. So the population approaches, all of those things that you may see on the train uh, or the bus or, like, on TV, radio, like, basically throwing up the hotline, right, those are population approaches where we're raising awareness um, and public health people do a really good job of this, right, of, like, creating... Um, infographics and pamphlets, stuff like that, that kind of show you like the warning signs for suicide. Right? If you've ever seen those things online or pamphlets that are like, if your friend, you know, or if you see someone doing like these five things, right? Like giving away their possessions, saying goodbye, blah blah blah, all that stuff is like signs of suicidality. So from the public health standpoint, that's the population approach. Um, and then, and they also mentioned like doing trainings, right? So You know, as someone in psychology and the mental health field, we do have to engage in suicide training regularly. It's a, a CE requirement for me to even get my license when I start that process. So, like, training people who are going to be working with populations at risk for suicide. And this also means, like, making trainings available for... People that are not in mental health, right? So, like maybe clergy, maybe community leaders, uh, maybe just like regular people, um, you know, who want to learn about how to notice suicidality and, and know how to intervene. Uh, making those trainings available, I think we could do be, I think we could be doing a better job of that and making that more accessible. But that, that is a population approach. Um, the next approach is called primary prevention, and so this is defined as like efforts to Reduce risk factors before suicide is attempted. So this is this is prevention, not intervention. So intervention um, would happen like if someone has already attempted or has um, voiced feeling suicidal ideation. And so if you've ever like if you've ever been in therapy and said you know, and like said, I feel suicidal, or I've been thinking about suicide, um, you've experienced like the interventions, right, where maybe you've had to make a safety plan with your therapist, Um, maybe it's been recommended that you go to the hospital to be stabilized, or maybe just engaging in um, other types of like safety planning, if you feel that you'll be safe and not attempt, um, you know, if you were to leave the office. So that's like after, right? Like, you've already disclosed that. But primary prevention is, like, before people even get to the point where they say, I'm thinking about suicide, how can we help them? And so these are things that can target things like isolation, right? So um, I think during the pandemic, there was a big push for this, too, of, like, creating programs to help. There's a program in Orange County that I saw that was, like, you could sign up to basically be, like, an older person's buddy. (laughs) So, like, and it was for, like, it was, like, for older people. So it was, like, if you were, like, in your 50s, you could sign up to be, like, somebody, a buddy for somebody in their 70s, right? So you're creating social networks between these two groups that are both at risk for isolation, but in a way where, like, there's agency there, right? Like, they're buddy, it wasn't, like, I don't know, it was... It was a really cute program. It was like you could just sign up to be people's friends and like take them into their appointments like go to the park day. It was really cute. I wanted to do it, but I, I wasn't old enough. <laughs> um, but you know, like those kinds of programs where we're trying to we're trying to el- eliminate the risk factors of suicide. Um, and unfortunately, like the DSM lists one of the risk factors of suicide su- suicidal ideation as being male. <laughs> it's like we can't really prevent you being male. Um, but we can, we can, uh, design prevention programs that do, that are built for men or that might appeal to men more or that might appeal to the issues, um, that are more likely to cause men to, to attempt suicide. So it's prevention. And then the last one is they describe a multidisciplinary perspective, so basically, like, how do we link as many different sectors together um, so that they can work together in suicide prevention? So this is things like, if you work in a school district, do you know the hotline numbers? Um, do you know which hospitals are the best to hospitalize someone to if they need to be hospitalized? Um, do you know resources in like in school right because you're working with children do you know resources in that child's community that they can be plugged into Um, religious leaders in that community that might be good to reach out to so basically wanting in order for no one to fall through the gaps we all have to work together so there aren't any gaps right and this is kind of one of the conversations that I've come up with in regards to like defunding the police is like instead of sending out just a law enforcement officer what if we sent out people who were trained who know the different resources that are available to someone who's actively suicidal so that they're not put in harm's way. And I support that. I think that's fantastic. And I think including multidisciplinary people on that team, so you have social workers, you have therapists, you have case managers, maybe even um, like a medical professional, like a nurse, you know, people who, who know what they are doing and can evaluate and assess and make a plan on the go. Um, So that's how the CDC talks about dealing with suicide from a public health standpoint. So I think basically the answer to my question of like, is it enough to just post the suicide hotline is, of course it's not, right? Like other stuff has to be happening. But the, you know, the reassurance we can have is that the public health field um, and the mental health field in general is working on initiatives to make suicidality awareness possible and to make... These types of holistic prevention or primary or population prevention accessible. So putting up the link is a part of population approach, right? But my hope would be that that's not the end all be all, especially for a company like Netflix, right? Like I'm hoping that they are engaging in like putting their money where their mouth is and not just putting up links to things, but also donating money to project to to the Trevor Project or to the Crisis Text Line. And making sure that their employees are trained to uh, notice and identify suicidality, um, and that they they have access to resources in their own community. So, that's my hope. I would like to believe that Netflix <laughs> engages in that kind of stuff, and I I would say that that's something that I would hope for everyone's workplace to engage in. And one last like general thing that I want to talk about before I jump into this really interesting critique about like white liberal performative art is uh i want to talk about the way that masculinity is portrayed in this special and i have to say huge fan love the way that masculinity is portrayed i would say that Bo uses his body and like his body and, and the clothes that he wears or the lack of clothes <laughs> that he wears um he uses it in a way that would we wouldn't code traditionally masculine there, there's a vulnerability to it right like there's there's many scenes in the special where he's only in his underwear or he's only wearing uh, like a t-shirt. And there's even in one of the songs where he's (laughs) talking about a white woman's Instagram, where he's wearing like overtly feminine outfits um, and posing overtly femininely. And that's, that's like communicated to us through the song and through his expressions is like that he's doing this on purpose, but it's not in a way where it's like, I don't know it's it's not over the top like he's not doing drag right like because drag itself is its own type of like gender performance and and commentary on gender which i think is fantastic and it is like i could probably do a whole 18 episodes on (laughs) drag and gender performance but the way that beau is performing his gender is so interesting and there's never any there's never any confusion of like he he's still a man right he still identifies as a man Um, but he's engaging in like a non-traditional masculinity and so uh, I was reminded of Judith Butler's work which if anyone out there is a critical queer theorist (laughs) you know uh, (laughs) you know Judy Butler (laughs) Um, but Butler wrote this paper in the 80s about the concept of gender performance where gender is described as philosophically as something that we have to repetitively perform to the point where it, it, it appears to be natural or biological because of the the repetition. And when someone performs gender wrong, there are punitive consequences from society around them. Um, so for example, if you were ever a child well, you were all children. <laughs> You were a child, let's say, um, a child who was assigned male at birth who enjoyed playing dress up in like what was considered feminine clothes, like wearing a dress or high heels. You may have experienced people around you letting you know that that was not cool or that that was not the right way to be a little boy. It may have been in the way of, of making it so it was so funny because it's so absurd, like, oh, ho, 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 you're so, what a funny little boy that you're wearing a dress, right, but you're implicitly given this message that it's funny because it's wrong, right, it's funny because it's absurd, Uh, or you may have been explicitly told, like, take that off, those are girls' clothes, Um, and so those are the consequences of performing gender wrong, of, like, because we assigned you the gender male, uh, we expect you to perform in a certain way, and when you go off script, there are consequences, um, and, and Butler talks about how, so we are actors, right? We're, we're the actors and we have been given a script of gender. Um, but we do have freedom to interpret that script. Um, and I think that especially since the eighties, when this paper was written, we've seen that room to interpret opening up even wider. Um, and if you were to go back to like the 1800s, obviously the script or the room to interpret the script has grown, right? Cause like men, can, uh, women can wear pants and like not be called a witch and burn, <laughs> Um, right that's like an interpretation of the script as women or people who identify as women wearing male clothing um, and there being no consequences right like typically there's no consequences for that or no punitive consequences it's not as, as pleasant for people who identify as male right and I think a perfect example of this is uh, when Harry Styles did the I think it was Vogue did the Vogue shoot in, in dresses which Was some of the most beautiful (laughs) photos I've ever seen, and those the dresses were exquisite. And of course, it's Harry Styles. I'm a little bit of a stan, (laughs) Um, but like people on the internet flipped out, right? Like particularly people we would label as the right, like flipped out and was like, "This is an attack on masculinity," right? So in that example, when Harry Styles puts on a dress, he is interpreting the script of gender in the way that he wants, right? He's he's interpreting. He's performing his gender to us by wearing a dress, identifying as man, right? He's, he's being pretty clear about those those differences. But however, we're, he is still constrained on the stage of cultural boundaries, right? So the when those pictures came out and people reacted negatively and said, like, this is not okay, this is like a soft man or whatever garbage was said, right? Those are um, people reinforcing the boundaries the cultural boundaries of gender. So that's this idea of gender performance. And I think it's really interesting that I, I haven't seen this online and maybe it's out there and I just haven't seen it, but I haven't seen backlash to Bo being like naked in his boxers as, uh you know, like, oh, he's not, he's like a soy boy. <laughs> you know, like I haven't seen that in the same way that we saw when Harry Styles wore a dress. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that although it's, I mean, he's he's being pretty explicit in a lot of his songs that he's embodying a more, like, feminine or traditionally feminine performance, right? And I think particularly in the song Problematic and White Women's Instagram, he's, like, performing more femininely. Uh, no one loses their mind. and I think it's because he's wearing boxers, right? He's wearing underwear that's coded masculine. And so I wonder of what would be the reaction to his songs or his performance if he was wearing, you know, if he was in his underwear, but he was wearing a bra, right? Which is like coded feminine. Would people be as upset, even though nothing else has changed about the actual performance and the choreography, it's just the clothing on top of the body that has changed. Would people still be upset about that? Um, and I... I think yeah, I think people would. And I think that's kind of where Butler talks about like the freedom to interpret is, you know, the the boundaries of the stage are like pretty explicit gender norms or gender roles, but within those implicit things we have room to play. And so Beau can play with like presenting implicitly presenting a performance that's more feminine and there's no punitive consequences for that because it's implicit. But once you step over an explicit boundary, um, then the culture will reinforce its boundaries. So I just, you know, I love this kind of stuff. I love gender theory, stuff like this. Um, and as I was watching it, I was just, like, blown away by basically the way that Bo performs his gender. Um, and I was really, I was jazzed. I really liked it, and I thought that it was a really, I think it's a good kind of, like, role model. Um, or kind of, like, a good setting the tone for the way that, that men can engage with their bodies. Alright, so moving on to kind of like the last piece of criticism about Bo's work. Um, I do have to credit a lot of this, or all of this, to um, this fantastic YouTube video I watched by FD Signifier, which I have linked in the sources as well. And I highly recommend you watch it because um, I'm not going to summarize everything that he said. But he sets up this concept which he calls white performative liberal art. And. Basically like this concept that when white people who are what he calls liberal and he specifies like basically like liberal on to the left, like anyone on the left, that white people in that realm of like the political sphere are like definitely well-meaning in the way that they engage with like race and social justice, um, but they tend to kind of center themselves still within the narrative, right? So, and this is really illustrated in, in some of the songs in Beau's special where he, I mean, he pretty explicitly states, like, you know, he has a line where it's like, you know, white men have been speaking for, in America for the last 400 years. Maybe I should shut up. And he's like, no, because I'm bored and I want to make money. Uh, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> um, but so this, the, in the video, FD Signifier is making the case that, you know, um, this this is a, a byproduct of what he calls white habitus, which is just kind of, like, the way that, that whiteness pervades every aspect of your life. Particularly, like, when you are a white person who does not interact with non-white people. So... You grow up in isolation, your whole uh, from like non-white people. You grow up with this sense of self and the sense of the world that like whiteness is the norm, and anyone who fails to meet the criteria of whiteness is like not doing a good job. And that you know he he does say that like Bo does wrestle with this in inside, but it's hard to like completely divorce yourself from that when you're a white person. And like I'm a white, <laughs> you know I'm I think I fall under this category that Signifier is talking about, and there is a truth to it, right? Of, like, this, I, like, it is hard to kind of pull yourself out of the white habitus, out of the, the way that whiteness pervades my life, and to consider, like, how a non-white person, which, like, even using the term non-white as, like, <laughs> as, like, everyone else is the same, because they're not white, is an issue. But, you know what I mean? Like, like, I, it's hard to take perspective, of if you were non-white, how would you perceive me or how would you perceive what I'm doing? So basically, you know, this video kind of set up this concept of of like making art that centers or, or is attempting to center social justice that uh, can be very performant. like it's in performance only. There's no action associated with it. There's no even like decentering of the white person to make space for other people. Um, and that's just something to be aware of when watching something like Inside. And that's what what I said up at the top, right? Is is like um, this content was made for white people, um, and like Bo is talking to white people <laughs> when he says stuff, when he says some of the things that he says in the special. And I think it's up to white audience members of this type of content to be aware of that and to like continue to wrestle with. What does it look like to decenter myself from the conversation of racism? Right, that it's literally not about me, and and like and and when I make it about me, what harm does that do to communities, particularly communities of color? So it's just like something to keep in mind when watching this content, and that's why I said it's so important to remember that like not all content is made for all people, but when white people, when us white people are engaging in content by other white people, like we do need to be. I think we do need to be aware of that um and again I highly recommend the video um that I'll link again he also talks about the way that like white youth culture is now all borrowed from black youth culture there's no like distinct white culture I mean, he explains it so much better <laughs> um but I just thought it was really it's just really interesting and interesting perspective so yeah those are kind of those are kind of I guess what I would say like the outside factors that I see either influencing Bo's special or being like the lessons that we can walk away with from his special. Um, but I do want to take a a minute to kind of break down some of the major songs just because that's the bulk of the content. Um, so I'm going to go through a few now. So one of the first songs is called comedy and this is, this kind of sets up, I think this, the tone about the social justice side. So the first song sets up the tone just in general, for the special, but this this song in particular sets up the tone about the, like, systemic stuff. Um, and basically, the conceit of the song is that Bo is questioning his career as a comedian and, like, can he do any good? Can he save the world with comedy? And there's some lines in there that I think are, are, um, that I, this is going to sound so bad, but I'm, I would conceptualize as, like, protective narcissism, um, right? Because he talks about, like, you know, only I can do this, or, like, I'm, like, the, one of the chorus lines is, like, I'm literally healing the world metaphorically, right, like, like I'm literally doing good, um, with my work, and there's this idea of, like, and I think this is, it's, I'm saying narcissism, but, like, I'm gonna throw the protective in front of it, because I don't think it's bad, like, I don't think it's a harmful form of narcissism, but I think it does illustrate that for, for people who maybe are creative, or, I think not even for creative just creative people but I think like for a lot of us who question like is what I'm doing enough having that protective narcissism like yeah I can make a difference like kind of keeps you from burning out and spinning out right of like if if Bo is not able to believe that his comedy can help people then what is the point right what does he have to do with his life and so and I, I think it's very vulnerable, but I also think it's, like, kind of affirming of, like, yeah, you sometimes you need to believe that you are a savior <laughs> so that you can, like, still get out of bed and, and do what you need to do. Um, so I, he comes back, like, he reprises this later, this song later, but I, re- I, I really like this one. I, I thought it was good. And, and there's an interstitial in here right after this song where he basically states to us that he's doing this special so that he doesn't kill himself during the pandemic, during being alone. And so this is where also we start to see like this theme of suicidality, wrestling with suicidality is going to come into play. And so given all that we just talked about before, right, I think that's just important to keep in mind. Then he moves into the next song that I guess is my absolute favorite is called FaceTime with My Mom. Um, just have to say, relatable Boomer Mom content. Um, he, t- he talks about how like she holds her phone six inches from her face. And, uh, just shout out to my parents who I know are listening to this. This is something that I've told them multiple times. I'm like, I can't, I can't see you the way that you hold your phone. Or like, I can't see both of you if you want to talk to me at the same time. It was just really relatable. And I think so many of us, because we weren't able to see our families in person, it was like, this was the only connection we had with our parents, right? was like video calls, FaceTime or whatever. And, and I think this does, this sets up kind of like a generational like there, there's some themes later on in his work about like differences between generations, and I think this is just a really interesting per- portrayal of you know because I'm I'm in the same generation as Bo, right? Of those of us who are in this millennial generation where we've we've grown up for the most part with technology, and we're trying to communicate with our older parents through technological means. Uh, it can be really frustrating, but sometimes it's the only way we have to maintain that connection. And so you deal with it, right? You deal with the frustration because you have you want to maintain that connection with your family and that it's important um, and, th- and that you make space for them in your schedule, even if you don't want to, or even if it's more frustrating than helpful, right? Like technology is what's allowing us to make, maintain those connections. So yeah, this also just... <laughs> It just evolves in the end of him like pantomiming that he's like yelling at his mom to take her thumb off the camera, and like honestly, that just sent me to the moon. I thought that was the funniest thing. Um, And so this, I think, this was the point in the special where I was like, "Oh, this is relatable. This is this is for me." Um, And that's probably why I liked it so much. Okay, so then another big one that you've probably seen the YouTube clip of is uh, called "White Women's Instagram." and this is the one where he's really playing with gender where he's throughout the song there's a series of like scene setups where he's basically like mimicking what if, like photos that you would see on a white woman's instagram and and throughout the song he names all these things like pumpkins and dogs and uh like <laughs> quotes that are wrongly attributed to Martin Luther King like you know it's it's a lot of stuff that if you have a white woman in your life, or if you are a white woman, <laughs> you know that you've done this stuff. Um, and then what I liked about this song was, like, the tone is not hateful. Like, the tone is like, kind of poking fun of this stuff, but then in the the chorus, he's he's saying, like, is this heaven, or is this a white woman's Instagram? And it's like, yeah, because we all like these photos, right? Like, if you have a white woman on your timeline, you've seen this stuff, right? And you, <laughs> you he probably liked to feel for photos, and I felt very called out because I was like, I've either been tempted to take these types of photos and put them on my Instagram, or I have liked these types of photos. You know, there, there is also a poking fun at some of the stuff that white women do that's maybe a little tone deaf or not very thoughtful. Like, there's a, one of the scenes, he has a, a mug that says, like, spirit animal on it. It's like, Beyonce is my spirit animal. And it's like, that's not, like, don't say that. <laughs> right, like... White woman, this is this is just like, this me to you, you to me, stop saying spirit animal. It's not for us, we don't really know what it means, um, so let's just stop saying it. And I'm 100% guilty of having said it in the past, but we've got to stop saying it. Um, and we've got to stop saying that things like Beyonce, like a black woman, are spirit animals. You see how that's like, she's like a little problematic. <laughs> and so, you know, I think in this song, he's like kind of poking fun at that. And it's just, I think it's just a good reminder for like and this is what i've said before of like the content that he makes is for a specific audience um right this he's making this content for white women to kind of examine the stuff that we do so again this i think just just this song in particular just serves as i think a good tone to take about yourself as if like if you identify as a white woman right that it's like a little little bit of like poking fun a little bit of a reminder to like check in and and maybe not do some of the stuff that we do <laughs> um, and also just like enjoying stuff right like you can enjoy pictures of your latte art if your whole Instagram is just pictures of latte art and groupie car poems I don't care I'm glad that you enjoy that and I think that you should enjoy that but I, th- I think that you should enjoy that stuff right um, a lot of the aesthetic stuff that he's talking about it's, it's harmless you know um it's just enjoy it's just enjoying things that you want to enjoy. But when you're enjoying things and you're not able to critically examine them and you buy the Beyonce's My Spirit Animal mug because it looks cute, just like take a minute to think about if that's appropriate. Or like what is that message really saying? The next one that that I thought I found very interesting from a a mental health perspective uh, was the unpaid intern bit, and so the unpaid intern song is like really short. But then basically what follows is like this never-ending cycle of commentary, um, which I think this was, on one hand like a really cool shout out to. I don't know if it's cool, but it was a it was a shout out to the kind of like the YouTube community that Bo comes from, which has turned into like these kind of type of commentary videos where you're commenting on content. Um, and sometimes you'll literally see videos of, like, commentating on commentating of content. Um, and so we see Bo kind of, like, in this cycle of commenting on himself, commenting on his content. Um, and, and from a therapy perspective, I thought it was really interesting because it's, it's kind of, like, a very meta or, like, existential approach where he's, like, thinking about how he thinks about himself. And you kind of see... How his schemas, I'm gonna be real CBT about it. <laughs> you can see how his schemas come out in the second round of commentary. He basically, like, he says, it's really unlikable how I do this or how I'm pretentious. Um, and he's commentating on his commentary by trying to explain. Um, kind of like the defense mechanisms that he uses and why he uses them. Which, if I was a therapist working with someone like this, I'd be like, wow, fantastic. Like, I'm so glad that you are able to self-reflect. However, now we're going to work on, like, the self-talk, right? Because it's a little bit negative. Um, But it is really interesting to see him kind of, like, identify defense Mechanisms or things that he does to deflect or avoid certain feelings or certain vulnerabilities. And I kind of think that this this interstitial with the commentary bit is a clue to us that Bo is engaging in like self reflection, that like he is self aware of his content. And, and that comes up later in one of the songs that like he's aware of his content from the past as well. So I, I thought this was cool. This was like a little meta. Um, and then later on, does a song called Sexting which uh, I think on the surface is just like very funny <laughs> He's like describing this like the, the attempts of engaging in sexting with a partner um, and doing things like using emojis and those being misinterpreted but what I thought was really interesting was um, it really highlights like like the insecurity of engaging in, in sexting or like develop trying to develop intimacy in a digital world like for example in one of the first verses he, is saying like he sent an emoji back and she hasn't responded and he's like a little concerned about the message that it sent uh until she responds and it's okay and there's this insecurity of like he doesn't know how she's responding in real time and and you know when we have to develop intimacy one of the ways that we develop intimacy with people is being able to like see them reacting to us right and 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 knowing You know how our words are landing with them, and being able to make not only like eye contact but physical contact. And when you're engaging in sexting or other types of like digital intimacy, like dating online, um, you miss out on that. You miss out on that like real time feedback that helps grow intimacy. And I think that this will become. I mean, it's already prevalent, right? Like online dating and stuff like this is already prevalent in society. But I think it'll become more prevalent, and it's a good idea for this is a call out to the mental health field, right? For us to kind of be prepared for how to, to work with people who are trying to develop intimacy in a digital setting, in, in a setting where maybe um, they don't have the type of feedback that we would normally want to help develop an intimacy and attachment. And do we encourage people to step away from digital intimacy or do we help them figure out ways to develop intimacy digitally? In a in a healthier or more secure way, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question, but I think I, that really struck me about this particular song, and I think is, is really useful for those of us who work with younger people who are this is more prevalent, uh, or for, even for older people who maybe you know are are in a different phase of relationship, uh, or maybe trying to start a new relationship, um, but things have changed and it's not the way that it used to be. Uh, it's just something to be aware of, and I, I just I really did like. It. I thought it was very vulnerable. Uh, I think that I probably said that word eight thousand times, but you can really sum up this whole special as vulnerable. <laughs> um, another one that I really liked was his song "Problematic," um, which uses this like '80s like beat with this like religious iconography, almost like a Madonna video. I thought it was really interesting, um, and basically. He's kind of calling out this, like, what I guess you could call the, like, cycle of uh, YouTube apology. <laughs> um, and I think because Bo started on YouTube and, like, has a YouTube presence, uh, I think he's uniquely positioned to talk about this. But and it's not just on YouTube, right? This happens online. But, you know, if someone gets called out for something, they make kind of, like, a half-assed apology. And then, like, they go back to normal um even though the whole time like we're crying out cancel culture right but it's like you didn't get canceled because you just went back to normal maybe you have less subscribers but like you're still making content um so this whole video is just really parodying that and um it's like a very sexual video or or performance like i mean he's like wet (laughs) the whole time um, but just the way that he's and this is another one where he, like the way that he's using his body and performing gender is um, maybe not like traditionally masculine, but is definitely like communicating sexuality. Um, which I'm sure there's like a whole we could really dig into Freud <laughs> about like the connection between sexuality and guilt. Um, but it just all to say that this this particular performance really, I think, I think he's really parodying quite a few things while also kind of apologizing. Um, and the, the YouTube video I mentioned earlier about white liberal performative art kind of talks about this and the concept of that, that concept as well. So again, I highly recommend checking that video out. Um, then next we move into the uh, song 30, which I I think is probably one of the like high points of, of the special is he, he's basically singing a song about he turned 30. He turned 30 while making the special. Um, and he's not feeling great about it. <laughs> um, and and he he talks about his friends are starting to have kids. And you know, from a developmental standpoint, right? it's it's I think there's this feeling of being left behind of when your social group is starting to move on to a new stage of development and that means that could mean getting married, that could mean having kids maybe starting different types of jobs, just kind of settling into, like, a more permanent, not even a more permanent, but just settling into a different type of developmental stage from maybe where you were altogether in your 20s. Um, And he, in the song, he's, like, there's anger there. There's, like, like, he keeps saying, all my stupid kids, all my stupid friends are having stupid children, but I think underlying that is this, like, like, like sadness if I've been left behind, right? Of like, I'm not having children. I haven't moved on to this next stage, you know? And, and wh- I think whenever we turn a, a nice round number, like 20, 30, 40, there's, there's, like, there's this feeling like I should have checked off some things on my list or I should be, like, this is supposed to be a turning point even though that's not how development works. And so I, I think he just really captures a lot of that in this song, um, and this is also the one of the songs where suicide comes up pretty explicitly, because he ends the song with saying, um, in, 2040, in 2030 I'll be 40, and I'll kill myself then, and the song kind of cuts, and then he cuts to an interstitial of him talking about, like, please don't commit suicide. And the way that he... I, I thought this was very interesting, because it, it, it's, it's raw. I mean, it's honest. Um, like, he's talking about what the pull is to commit suicide, of, like, wanting... Out, but of saying like not to do it, and that he's had people close to him do it, and, and that he, that, you know, it's not fun for the people who are left behind. Um, and this is where I think you know, I would have liked this is where, where I would have liked to have seen like a little more of an effort, uh, with regards to like the helpline stuff, right? Of like maybe we could have flashed the number here, or maybe this is where Netflix can have a pop up. For you to click on the link or whatever it is, but this is, I think this is another critique I have of this is like, th- this was such an intense portrayal or discussion of suicide. And I know that it's part of his art and it's part of his self expression, but I think there can be. A little more context around it a little more follow-up for resources so that's that's just something that i something that i noticed um so then a few songs later there's this scene we see where beau pulls out the sleeper couch and he sets up his bed and he lays down he's looking at the door and the the light from the door is shining in his face and he falls asleep and all of the songs from here on out i think are this idea of he is asleep he's asleep and this is why things are kind of, like, falling apart. And these, these songs are a little more... Um, what's the word? Like, I guess, like, existential? Or they they just feel a little more mood incongruent. Um, like, he has two songs where he's singing about feeling horrible. Like, feeling like like a mess. Feeling just at his all-time low. But the, the tone of the song, the, the, the music itself is, like, really upbeat. The lights are bright. It's mood incongruent, right? Because he's 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 saying he feels one way, but he's he's showing it to us in a a different way. Um, and so this is where I think it's like he's he's telling us that he's he's in a different place. Whether that means he's fallen asleep or he's just fallen deeper into himself, he's he's falling somewhere. At one point earlier in the special, he said something about um, I feel I only feel okay when I'm or la- actually no, right? A few songs later, he says I, I only feel okay when I'm asleep. And I think this is him kind of showing that things have gotten so bad that even when he's asleep he doesn't feel okay or that things are kind of like invading his his one like refuge. And so there's a couple of songs in this section. There's the Welcome to the Internet song which I just I just have to watch it and he just he really talks about how like the internet is bad <laughs> uh because there's just there's too much and the way that the algorithms on the, the social media's were on um, and then for these generations who have grown up on the internet, we just are inundated with content, information over and over again, and it's it, it gets more and more extreme. Um, so I, I just you know my only comment about that is just like I think it is a really good kind of description of I think it is a really good description of like what it's like to be on the internet and um, to maybe not be aware of its impacts on you. And then the last song that I want to talk about toward the end is is All Eyes on Me, which is, I would say, probably one of the scariest or most intense moments of the special, and when I first watched it, he's- in this one, he's kind of emulating a live performance, as if he were back on stage, and this is where he talks about, like, he was having panic attacks, that's why he stopped performing, and he was finally at a place where he felt ready to perform- and in January 2020, he had made the decision that he was going to go back out on tour, and then like you know that didn't happen because of the pandemic. And there's this intensity in it. He he's he's he has the camera really tight on his eyes. He's looking in at you. He's looking at the audience, and he's kind of asking you to watch him fall apart. Um, because the the end of the song is that he picks up the camera and he starts spinning it around, and he's like like he's yelling at the cam- at the audience to participate. Um, and there's a line where he's he's asking the audience like heads down pray for me and it like the the emotion in that was like it was just so intense and it was I've almost felt like that was more of a cry for help than than the song about turning 30 and killing himself like there was there was something about that song that was just like begging you to help him or like begging you to to just watch him to observe him and um, I think there's that pull for people who perform right of like like all eyes on me right watch me whether I'm doing a good job or not whether I'm falling apart or not like watch me I need your eyes on me to keep me contained and so yeah I think I think some one thing that really pulls me to this song too is is like this is a a, an expression of emotion that uh, although intense and almost a little scary is necessary and I think, can, can t- you know, if we're talking about this as, like, a good representation of mental health, of, like, you know, you got to get that out. You have to get that feeling out. And if you're having that feeling, you have to tell someone about it. He tells us, right, in the special. But if if you're not a performer, you're not able to do that, like, you need to talk to someone. You need, you need to have someone in your life who has their eyes on you and can contain you. And sometimes that needs to be a therapist. A lot of times that needs to be a therapist. Um, so that, I think... For me, I really hope that this, these kind of like implicit messages are clear to people and that there is a push of like, you don't, like, please don't do this alone. Like, Bo did it alone, but like, please don't do it alone. Um, He's not, he wasn't doing well and we, we don't do well when we're alone. And so let's not do it alone. Basically, in conclusion, he wakes up after the song, and this is... He's kind of coding to us that he's back in the real world. Like, he had almost, like, this cathartic release in his dream, and he's back in the real world. But the ending shows that... The very ending shows us that he he exits the room and he's on a stage and it's like people have been watching him the whole time and he's trying to get back inside the house and he can't there's like like he's locked out of his home so it definitely doesn't end on like a happy note (laughs) it ends like in this in this tone of desperation but i think that that is real i think that it's i think it's very authentic um and i think that if you are able to watch this type of content and engage with it that you learn from it you learn to see that you don't have to do it alone that or, or that you see like some solidarity and that the pandemic was really hard it's really hard on us and it was really hard on our well-being um and that you're not alone you're not alone in it it's not just it's not just that Bo went through it with you right it's like we all we all went through it together um, and I guess okay, now I'm just getting a little wishy-washy but so I think this is a good place to wrap it up. but basically I had a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts about this special. I really loved it. I really encourage you to watch it um, and to engage in it with with the level of like analysis that I did. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you want to you know shoot me an email at psychbindedpod at gmail.com um, or leave comments on, any of my social medias that you can find on the, uh, on the blog, um, I'd love that. I'd love to keep this conversation going, but otherwise, I really appreciate you sticking with me through this <laughs> another epically long episode where I got way too excited about a lot of different things, but you made it. We made it through, uh, and I appreciate you, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode visit psychologicallymindedpod.com to contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com please subscribe and review the podcast thank you and see you in the next episode